Welcome to the Truth CSGO Podcast, episode 65. Today we are talking Blast Series Miami, Charlois Esports, Star Series, iLeague Season 7, roster changes to play or not to play, and a little bit about Nietzsche. Hey guys, this is Lefro. Hey guys, I'm Guardian. This is Daps. This is Nico. This is Nifty. This is Chris J. This is Ferry. Godzera. Flusher. Oh, this is Kerrigan. Are you listening to the truth? The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. CSGO podcast. The truth. CSGO podcast. The truth. CSGO podcast. Are we rushing in or are we going sneaky beaky like? So it's been three weeks since the last episode. I think this is the longest in between episodes since beginning this podcast. And the reason for that is that I have been under a huge amount of work pressure. There actually hasn't been the time to finish a full episode. I haven't even had the time to do it in installments. However, I do have the afternoon off this afternoon. It's possible that I've burnt something out in my brain in the last uh, few days in particular. So if I stop making sense at some point... Uh, you'll know that I'm sitting here with a spring hanging out um, and I will be found in the morning by the hotel cleaners. Now, there is a lot to get through and some of this news is going to be slightly old purely because of the delay in episodes. But let's smash into Blast Pro Miami. This was a $250,000 prize pool as per the Blast series. The winner gets 125 k and this came down to a grand final between FaZe and Liquid, which wasn't everyone's prediction because Australis were competing at this event. But FaZe were looking incredible. They were flashing for each other. The aim was on point. Uh, this was not like the dominant FaZe we saw in 2017 uh, because Olaf Meister wasn't popping off as he did then. But uh, it was it was feeling like the confident FaZe of old. And Adren did manage to step up in this game, as in this series and this uh, event, I should say, as did Rain. Uh, they ended up winning this grand final 2-0 over Liquid and the highlight from this particular match and I would say probably the event uh, in in of a hole in the hole the event oh my god it's already started uh, the best map was Dust 2 and that was because Rain at one point was up 22-0 uh, and then he went up 24-1 shortly after This felt like an absolute crapping on from a great height, but I would say it was more due to the fact that Liquid sort of dropped the ball a little bit. They did stage an okay comeback in this particular map, but FaZe hit A-site so many times, they began to read and adapt and closed out the series. Now, just on FaZe, this was their first Blast Pro that they won. Nico looked a lot more confident than when I met him at IEM Sydney last year, even after they won that particular tournament against Australis in a best of three. He's getting a lot of crap from uh, people in the scene, like Theron and Lewis, but I don't think that their portrayal of him as some sort of cross between Machiavelli and Napoleon uh, is entirely correct, at least in my interview with him, if I'm triangulating my opinion of him with that uh, and his interviews and Carrigan subsequently, in which they've explained that he took the mantle of IGL of FaZe at London Major, sort of only as a team decision uh, of last resort. I think that uh, I think I can give him a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt than the community seems to be doing at this particular time. Can we expect more of this showing from FaZe? They did manage to beat uh, Astralis along the way, 16-2, and we'll get to that in a second. Oh, not 16-2, I think it was 16-4. Um, I don't know if we necessarily can because FaZe seem to be playing a confidence game when they win as opposed to a strat-heavy game or a uh, game 
or a victory that's particularly grounded in uh, great practice techniques or discipline. So you'll also notice that this theory is backed up somewhat by the fact that they will often go down a map or two maps into their first uh, game in a tournament, much much like Navi. And at that point, having nothing left to lose, that's when they come back. That's when they relax and come back and win the tournament. Uh, one interesting little point that I was picking up uh, during the week, I was reading about the F1 players a few weeks ago, uh, the F1 players, the F1 drivers a few weeks ago. If you recall in the last episode, I was talking about Aki Hinsa, uh, the F1 doctor. One of the interesting things he talked about uh, in regards to F1 was that players, players, drivers could drive in the F1 without being at peak physical condition and still win and still have a great race as long as their mentality was okay. And that phrase really stuck in my head because I think the same can apply to CSGO. Of course, when you get a team like Australis who are taking care of all factors and they're going to be dominant statistically, but uh, it's definitely a very similar scenario to F1, I reckon. CS. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone has uh, compared the two sports in the past before, but there you go. Now, one of the interesting things about this uh, grand final as well was that this is Liquid's 10th final and 18th top four finish at a 250k event. None of them have been wins. I think this is in the last, this must be in the last uh, couple of years, maybe since 2018. That's weird. I've pulled a statistic and put it in my notes and not even uh, worked out exactly the context. But obviously, we are getting very used to liquid choking in the finals at this point. Uh, something's going on there with their mentality. The biggest story, however, about Miami, uh, the Blast Pro Miami, was the fact that Australis went down in three straight bests of ones to MIBR, Phase, and Liquid. And the MIBR one in particular was stomping. That was 16-2 on Overpass. And if you listen to this podcast regularly, you will know that Overpass and Astralis and the Brazilian Core are fallen for Antaco and Cold Zero and Phelps slash FNX. Uh, is one of my favorite matchups, especially, well, basically originating in the PGL Krakow Major. Uh, there was a, there was a very great there was a really fun replay of that in the most recent major where MIBR almost took out Australis and this just felt like an, a completely about turn a bit of a 180 I think the fact that Australis won three best of best of ones to three different teams speaks more to the fact that they probably were just having a really bad day uh, as opposed to the fact that these teams came came down with some amazing anti-stratting um, I didn't think that they were actually beaten by heavy anti-stratting on the part of any of the teams. It seemed more like a confidence uh, disparity. So who knows what's up with those guys? Probably burnt out. Uh, if I am right in the way I surmise that they practice and they are probably uh, the pressure of practicing and performing at such a high level is going to get to them a lot more than other teams who are not putting in the work. So we will see how they uh, play in the upcoming tournaments, although I don't think they have a major one for the next three months. Anyway, one of the other things about Blast Pro that we need to mention are the format problems. It's been a controversy since these these were started. If, you, if you're a follower of mine in on the podcast or on Twitter, you will know that it's not a favorite. The best of uh, ones happening at the same time as two other best of ones. Uh, as a completionist, 
it's heavily frustrating because I cannot watch three matches at once. And to have to go back and watch the VODs of some of these matches, which are really fun, uh, is a pain in the b-hole. The other problem with the format has been well publicized on the internet. If you're not quite sure about what I might be alluding to, it is the fact that we've had teams, both in this one and I think it was Lisbon, Blast Pro Lisbon, who were guaranteed to be in the finals by the time the their second last match came around, and they could basically decide who they wanted to play in the finals by how they performed in their penultimate match. So, for instance, in this in this one, Liquid were playing MIBR in their semifinal, and if they wanted to play MIBR again in the grand finals instead of the winner between FaZe and Astralis that was being played out, all they had to do was lose against MIBR, and they would have played them. Uh, so at Lisbon, we had Astralis playing C9, Cloud9 in the semifinals, and they could have chosen to play them by losing to them instead of playing Na'Vi in the grand finals. Now, I'm not saying that anyone did that, but it's a bit of a weird format when teams might be incentivized to play slightly less good Counter-Strike. Uh, there is also a controversy about Astralis that has come up in the last week. They have decided to skip some of the bigger tournaments in favor of some of the Blast Pro tournaments this year. Uh, the controversy arises because the same organization that owns Astralis, that's Refresh, also own the Blast Pro format. And so people have been crying foul that they are skipping larger tournaments simply to play the tournaments uh, for basically their own company. Uh, it's a legitimate criticism, although there are many sides to the story. If you want to make up your own mind, you can go onto Reddit. There's plenty of threads about it. Or listen to Return It By The Numbers, Richard Lewis and Thorin's podcast to get more about that. There's also Zonic's tweets. He's been talking about it. Zonic, the coach of Astralis. His uh, point of view was mainly that they're skipping these, these things for the health of the players. Uh, and there's also an interview that HLTV did with one of the boffins at Refresh. Uh, so you can do your, some research and make up your own mind. Uh, in terms of Blast Pro, they have uh, announced a new format recently, just before Miami. They're going to have eight of these tournaments in the year, and each tournament uh, teams will win points. And depending on how many points they get, we'll see whether or not they get invited to the final uh, Blast Pro, which is yet to be announced as to where that is going to be. That's going to be in December, though, I think around December 1st or 2nd. And that tournament will be, I think it's double the amount. It might be 500k prize pool. <clears throat> anyway, they're trying to turn themselves into a bit of a circuit here. I would love to see another circuit. Why not? That's great. I think the format has issues. Uh, in the interview with the uh, Refresh Boffin, he was talking about how it's much better for the spectators. If you have been a spectator or a Blast Pro event uh, and you want to give your opinion, let me know. You can send me an email or leave me a voice message and I'll put it on the uh, podcast because I haven't been to any and I would genuinely like to know whether it actually makes for a better viewing experience than the tournament uh, I have been to, uh, which is only IEM Sydney. Now, anyway, for that tournament, they have Madrid and LA coming up first and then the aforementioned World Championship in December. Let's move on to the Charlois Esports, which was played uh, just before in Charlois, Belgium. So the Charlois Esports was a relatively smaller it's a Counter-Strike tournament. It was in the Belgian city of Charleroi, named after Charles II of Spain. This was won by Vitality, netting them $56,000. They had a victory over Sprout in the grand finals, 
And Sprout's inclusion in the grand finals was perhaps somewhat of a surprise considering the other teams here were G2, Epsilon, LDLC, Gamer Legion, which is the new title of Existence's team, Virtus Pro with their new player Veggie or Veggie, an 18-year-old pole who they have just assigned to a long-term contract, and also Frostfire. Frostfire, if you don't know anything about them, they're a Malaysian team. They're ranked 117th. And a little bit of juicy insider tidbit knowledge here. Frostfire didn't actually qualify for this. The team that qualified was Boot DS, another Malaysian team. And Boot DS didn't go to the tournament for reasons that had to do with their unhappiness with Shawa Esports. Now, I don't know what that is. Um, but something dodgy was going on with the organization here. Let's just go back to Frostfire for a second because Frostfire, they have a YouTube channel and they have weekly wrap-ups from the players as to how the team's going. And one of these weekly wrap-ups from a month ago has no views. Not even one. No one even viewed it to check whether it had uploaded correctly. Now, these guys seem like likable guys and they've just had their first little taste of a tournament and didn't do so well. So chuck them a view. Uh, now, one of the uh, kind of, I guess, controversial or notable things about Shalwa Esports, unfortunately for them, was that they had one of the most disastrous opening music performances of all time, uh, Millie, Vanilli, Millie Vanilli levels. And if you're not aware of that reference, I would uh, Google it because as a child, it was one of the seminal uh, moments of television uh, growing up. And I felt quite bad for Shawa because this was so poorly organized, it seemed, and the stadium had sold very few tickets. Anyway, congratulations to Vitality for beating out the other teams. They definitely were expected to win that. They were the highest ranked team there by far, but uh, also a cool um, result for Sprout, who were punching above their weight in uh, more than one way. Let's move on to Star Series I-League Season 7. Now, we're going to go on some tangents talking about Star Series I-League Season 7, which was held in Shanghai. But before we do, let's talk about the grand final. It was Na'Vi versus Fnatic, and Fnatic had an incredible run to get here. But Na'Vi beat them 3-0, and it was very competitive. However, Simple and Electronic went ham-bone. Simple got the MVP with a rating of 1.9 billion or something. Uh, there was the weirdest reaction from a team ever upon winning a tournament here they won themselves $300,000 and yet they seem quite despondent bit of a weird vibe I think the CIS is sort of another world at this point uh, I'm going to have to embed myself there for a bit I reckon and just work out what the hell is going on uh, now post interview it was quite interesting to hear Simple talk about the fact that they had a dietologist post interview post game interview post match interview Interesting to hear that those guys were bringing along a dietologist and a psychologist, so they're obviously trying to uh, stay up with the competition at this point. I actually think that Na'Vi have something more left in them. I know there's been a lot bandied about, bandied around about Zeus's potential retirement. I think if Zeus puts his mind to it, he could turn this team into another major winning team uh, as a last gasp, especially if they manage to uh, get the rest of their stats uh, as high as Simple is currently punching. Uh, 
um, with things like uh, team support. Uh, Blade is also now their esports director. He's fresh from coaching Gambit and before that flip side, so that may be also adding a bit of, uh, how do we say, well-rounded juice to the team. I think it was in an uh, interview with Electronic who, who, where he said that actually Blade had been contributing anti-stratting <laughs> via the phone or email already. So maybe he's taking even uh, more of a grittier role than perhaps the title of esports director might suggest. And worth noting, as I pointed out uh, earlier, that they lost their first match to Vici. So that's become somewhat of a tradition for these guys. Now, as I said, it was a good showing for Fnatic considering how hard they'd been bombing out of tournaments in 2019, including the Major. NIP had some wins over Vici, North and Spirit, but couldn't beat Fnatic, Na'Vi or Renegades who basted them and roasted them in the oven. The addition of Draken didn't seemingly add a huge amount to this team. And in an interview with Lecro, he said they weren't even sure what their map pool is. And I guess that meant their map pool with Draken. Either way, it seemed like a bit of a headless organization at that point. Dennis is now back on the NIP roster and Draken is out, which seemed like a bit of a surprise to him. And I think to everyone involved, Dennis was, I think, believed to have been out for much longer than just two tournaments. But apparently he hunted enough game on the side to get the uh, mountain man juice flowing back in his veins. And since this tournament, actually, they've been playing ESL together. And haven't exactly been much better, but Dennis has been popping off and has had like a few of the first... Uh, games in a very long time where he's been top fragging so perhaps he has bounced back with a bit more juice in the veins now renegades this was another strong showing from them since the major since this amazing sort of new conglomeration of players and coach has come around this time they went down to navi in the semis despite beating them in the major actually they did get kind of roasted by uh, navi despite a convincing win on mirage the boys got themselves a number five ranking in the process on HLTV. This is the first time in this organization's history, but I do think they're not quite beyond that right now. It feels like the addition of Liaz and Gratisfaction freed up some other roles for players like JKM and, and JKS so that everything seems to be clicking a lot more because they still have a lot of ingredients that were around previously when this team wasn't, was sort of hovering around you know, the bottom 30 of the ranks or the sort of mid-20s. So this might just be the right uh, alchemical combination of players. Now, Ents didn't quite have the showing that they did the major. They took down FaZe but lost to Vitality and Na'Vi. Perhaps they've lost a bit of that motivation that propelled them to the grand final of the major. That's okay. Those guys are going to be back. NRG, uh, the big question around NRG was how Tarek would... Uh, you know whether he would boost these guys into the next tier that they kind of struggled to just well they just were tippy toeing around for most of 2018 he doesn't really seem to have done too much this team they still suffer from an underfragging daps as their igl uh and the roles don't seem to have changed too much north had some very weird results in this in this uh tournament they lost to some big teams beat some bigger teams they just sort of remain this foggy indecipherable puzzle to me phase was one of the big stories as well because they pooped out well i guess not big in that we had been expecting this for a while they lost to Renegades, Ensign North, and probably after this tournament, I would have said this surely has got to be the end of this particular uh, combination of players, but perhaps after Blast Miami, they'll find a little bit more fire and confidence and uh, bag a few more trophies before perhaps Adren goes out and we get in some IGL uh, who can control the um, 
talent on that team. Vitality had a good run here, beating Big Ensign Spirit, but couldn't beat Fnatic or NRG. And MIBR continued their disaster run. They only beat Panda. Panda, uh, who you, Panda, you may not know their name, but they were formerly CyberZen, the Chinese team. MIBR as well as FaZe had a bit of a crappy tournament, which was to be expected by this point. But having had a slightly better show at Blast Miami, perhaps they are... You know, perhaps that particular combination will continue on for a bit longer. Now, one of the uh, controversies at this tournament was the player, the AWPA on Renegades, the Australian AWPA, Gratis Faction. Well, sorry, not Australian, he's New Zealander. He gave the finger during uh, the Ninjas in Pajamas game because someone on stage was calling out where he was. And you can even hear it in the broadcast. Someone yells out sandwich and he's in a one versus three clutch. He managed to clutch it out, I think, but... uh, Gave the crowd, the member in the crowd, uh, a bit of a middle finger afterwards. Now the comments on his Twitter afterwards, when he went to when he went to Twitter to clear up and say and say he wasn't giving the finger to the Chinese people at all, he was just giving the finger to this person who was calling, uh, who was basically cheating for the other team. Uh, the comments to his Twitter were quite often, well, in, in several cases, telling him that he was giving a bad impression of his team by insulting the Chinese audience. I actually noted this down in my in my notes not because i well I, I wouldn't usually pay attention to tweets especially people who aren't pro players commenting on pro players tweets but it did strike me as quite interesting in that i wouldn't necessarily ever see that point of view from an audience member uh from a western country and i don't know whether i'm drawing a long bow here to compare this to the difference in social mentalities of the chinese versus the west um, perhaps an over-identification with the crowd, a lack of separation of individuals, etc., etc. But it did strike me as quite interesting. I, the debate on someone's Twitter after doing something like that would be very different in a Western country. I don't know what it means. It's something to chew on. But while we're on China, I think it's very worth pointing out something that I find very hard to ignore right now. Now, this this uh, tournament was taking part in was uh, happening in Shanghai. I was in Shanghai last year. Loved it. Crazy place. Um, bizarre place uh and there's a lot of weird things going on china right now including one of the weirdest things and probably one of the most scary things which is that the chinese government is currently keeping one million uyghurs in re-education camps in northern china now uyghurs are according to wikipedia a turkic people living in central and east asia the majority of them live in hanan which is a uh, northern province in China. And the camps, these re-education camps, are part of China's Strike Hard campaign that is alleged to use extrajudicial detentions, surveillance, political indoctrination, or re-education, torture and abuse to root out extremist elements according to a growing body of evidence that includes witness accounts, media reports, government documents, and satellite images. Now, I'm quoting here from various articles, including The Guardian, What's happened is that the Uyghurs are majority Muslim. I think it's like 80% of them are Muslims. And the Chinese government for the last 10 years at least has been painting them as extremists. There's been some attacks of which I've heard suspicion has been raised as to whether the attacks were fabricated or not. And in response, the Chinese government has created what a U.S. Congressional Commission on China called the largest mass incarceration of a minority population in the world today. Now, it's quite hard to know what's going on uh, because local and foreign journalists are quite closely monitored by the state. There's very few independent sources of news from around that point. I learned about this last year when I was doing uh, some work around artificial intelligence because what's going on 
in Hanan is is kind of a really dystopian extension of what probably some of you will have heard uh, referred to as a social credit score. And to keep control over the Uyghurs in certain parts of Hanan, they will take them down into the basement of their houses and scan their faces from all angles and then upload that data to the central camera system that the authorities have with a really advanced uh, artificial intelligence-based facial recognition system so they can, they can track their movements. Um, and this is really like a very kind of... Look, to compare it to anything that happened in the Holocaust, I, I, I don't know enough about what's going on and I also don't know enough about the Holocaust, but it does remind me of what was going on with the ghetto, in the ghettos and the monitoring of Jews in that particular time. What's crazy, and the whole reason I'm uh, even mentioning it on a Counter-Strike podcast is that it's going on for sure. It's been um, clarified, and obviously even U.S. Congress has has confirmed it. And yet um, we're having this incredible Counter-Strike tournament in the same country, and it just feels really weird. And I realize that, like, I'm not being consistent in the way I talk about tournaments because for instance you know there's a tournament next week in Sydney and therefore it might be my duty to remind listeners that Australia's refugee detention centers have been an international human rights embarrassment for over a decade consistently violating all sorts of long-standing conventions uh, being blasted by the UN and UNICEF and other sorts of world organizations uh, and of course there's all the other shit that other countries get up to that are as horrible all the time. I actually think this one is kind of fascinating. Um, especially, I mean, look, as someone who defended WESG only two tournaments ago, f- and one of my points for defending it was that, hey, we need to get uh, more Chinese interested in Counter-Strike if we want the scene to grow. It's just a very bizarre thing that's going on because the scale at which it's happening and what is actually going on seems so horrific and yet it's very i don't know it doesn't seem to be no one seems to be talking about it i mean it has been on the cover of the new york times and the front page of the guardian etc and i think it was even on the city morning herald at some point but for some reason it's just perhaps because china everyone needs the cooperation of china right now i don't know uh anyway if you didn't know about it i would definitely have a google about it there's Probably, if you're getting a lot of conflict infom- conflicting information uh, about it online, you're probably getting the Chinese government side and the rest of the world side. Um, I don't really know exactly why I did bring this up. This is not a political podcast. I'm not big on world issues, especially on this podcast. But sometimes I just feel like China's making so many omelets right now. They're breaking so many eggs. Uh, and for some reason, the way they're doing it, just isn't a part of my psyche in the way it, I don't know it perhaps should be I don't know anyway let's move on to some updates that I never covered because of um, I don't know for whatever reason so there was an update uh, maybe six weeks ago to Counter-Strike that changed the way the money system worked and added Vertigo into the map pool. Now, the reason I'm coming back to this, even though I never mentioned it in the first place, is because I think it's actually worth just having a tiny little, tiny little tete-a-tete about it right now. Uh, the dust has settled somewhat on the way the economy changes the way the game is played. Basically, if you've missed the news, 
there's less of a uh, reset, a money reset in between after losses and the teams get, a team that loses a round starts building up a sort of bonus that only increases, only decreases by one stage, basically after losing a round, not by resetting to the very start. The whole point of it was to create more gun rounds in a, in a typical match so that if a team lost uh, a gun round, we wouldn't expect that they'd also lose the second round round purely because they'd be on pistols for sure and perhaps even the uh, round after that because they'd still be saving. It would also mean that after losing the first pistol round, we wouldn't assume that the game proper started at four rounds in after the other team won the first three rounds. Is this the case thus far? In some ways it is. Having watched a lot of pro matches since then, I think the biggest benefit of doing it has less been for the viewers and probably more for the pro players because they're getting a lot more opportunities to play different uh, with different guns whose buying power slash, uh, I don't know, eff- eff- efficacy kind of ha- hung around that uh, second round buy range where you can't afford an AK but you've got more money than uh, than you know you, you you can spend with just a pistol. Uh, I don't think this makes for the most interesting matches, or as interesting as it would think, because the buys are so Frankenstein-y that it's a little bit hard to tell what's going on. If you've got five players with different guns, it kind of has the rounds have less of an identity than if they've all got AKs versus a team all with deagles, for instance. Uh, I don't think we've quite worked out the best way or the teams have quite worked out the best way to use this right now. Perhaps in the future we'll get to some sort of meta where the third loss uh, or the sorry, the second win or the, the fourth win and then a third loss leads to, let's say, five straight MP5s um, or four MP5s and a deagle and we'll start to see a recognizable meta. I think the fact that there isn't a recognizable meta right now makes the games a little less interesting than they were right before the money change. However, you know, give it a couple of months and maybe the teams will catch up and start to copy each other's strats, and that's when we kind of get to a point where it's easier for the viewer to understand what's going on. Now, Vertigo being added to the active map pool replaced Cash. I haven't been able to play it. I actually haven't played CS for seven months right now. Uh, long-time listeners will know that I went on a six-month sabbatical from video games full stop. I did actually try and play last month when my sabbatical came to an end, but my laptop has since lost its graphics card and could not even imagine, could not even manage a measly, what was it, like like 12 frames or something, and I was on a ridiculous ping here in Croatia trying to uh, connect with my mates in Australia. So I have not been able to play Vertigo it was a long time ago since I did play it, and I don't remember it being uh, very enjoyable. I felt it was kind of more like a Quake-esque map in its upper designs, and not very memorable in the in the in the design of the lower level. Uh, but it is also more notable for having places that you can simply fall off the building. It's an exciting map if you're new to the game because it's quite visual. You're at the top of a very tall building. Uh, and it's a great concept but never felt to me like a great map but the news for fans that you should really be uh, thinking about is that this is going to be used for sure at the next major because it is in the active map pool and therefore we're going to see a whole lot new Counter-Strike played in the second half of the year which is very exciting now let's move on to some of the roster news that I have missed and we'll tally up (laughs) 
Cloud9 released their French player Kiyoshima. A few things indicated that this wasn't exactly Kyo's choice, including a comment from Valens on a stream and Kyo himself saying he didn't leave by choice. There's also been some commentary, I think it was from Automatic on one of his streams, that Kyo's style didn't mesh with Golden's. He has been replaced by Cajun B. The old Kajo's back from uh, Optic, um, which is kind of weird for him because you'll know he wasn't the first choice for this team. Uh, because from memory, Cloud9 were trying to get MSL and Nico from Optic at some point. Those guys actually went off and joined. Um, no, wait, no, no, no. Those guys went to uh, those guys went to Optic, and uh, Cloud9 were trying to get them from Rogue. I think that was what was happening. Anyway, uh, they've also Cloud9 has also signed Vice, who was on Rogue as well. Golden has come back into the saddle, and I have no idea what to expect of this team. They've had some okay uh, showings in some online tournaments for the last few days. Now, Cajun used to be great in the heyday of Dignitas and TSM in around 2014, 2015. Since then, he's just sort of been semi-reliable. He's got a rating of 1.05. Vice has joined from Rogue, as I said. He's got a pretty good rating over there, but he does not have the experience of playing massive tournaments. I think early uh, indications on this team uh, suggest that he's playing a support role, which seems like the way to go. As I said, this also coincided with MSL and the Danish Nico moving over to Optic from Rogue. So those guys have gone back onto home soil and hopefully, I mean, this Danish like roster merry-go-round has been around so many times. Hopefully these guys will find some success finally, um, you know, since DreamHack Stockholm over there. Now LDLC, uh, back to the French side, two months after releasing their roster, have returned with Sixer, XMS, Happy and Major. If you recall, XMS and Sixer were actually playing with them, and they've also announced some new talent in the form of Roden. He's a little-known 21-year-old French kid with a rating of 9, uh, 0.93. His name's Rodolphe Bianco. I wish I was called Rodolphe Bianco. I feel like uh, life would have been slightly smoother for me. Hellraisers have signed Lowell. Lowell's come over from the Spanish movie star writers, and they've benched Hobbit at the same time, or shortly after, for Nucky. That's a bit of a fall from grace from the Hobster, winning a major at PGL, languishing on Gambit, going to Hellraisers, and now uh, being benched. I think one of the problems uh, from the murmurings around that team was that he was having to play in English, which is obviously not his first language, which I think is uh, Russian. Vega Squadron have signed Seized and Scooby G, replacing Tony Black and Hoochie, who are on the bench. Seized and Scooby G have joined Junior Crush and now Dima, who is part of the spirit team that beat Vega at the Major. I don't think this promises huge things for this team, uh, but Vega obviously needed some sort of new, I don't know, blood, because they didn't do what you were hoping they would do at the Major and run up... Uh, B-side of Inferno with five MAC-10s and destroy all in front of them. Seized, it's nice to see, has uh, returned to the scene. He's uh, hopefully got some magical fire still burning in his belly, otherwise this team probably going to languish for another year. Back to the American side of things, Swole Patrol are now Lazarus. <laughs> That's all I've got in my notes for them. Bondic has joined Windstrike in place of Waylander. Now, <clears throat> this seems like a bit of a lateral move. Waylander was definitely the weakest on Windstrike. Um at least in their most recent showing at the Major, but Bondic's not exactly been setting the world on fire of late, shuttling between teams such as uh, Tai Lu, and where was he? Hellraisers? I forget. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe they're just, maybe he's a placeholder where they find out what works next. Those guys have such uh, potential. 
um, Boomich and Co. And it would I would hate to see them be um, sort of, I don't know, capped at the glass ceiling once again with a player who's past his prime. Now, let's move on to some of the uh, response from last episode's content about Jordan Peterson. Now, as I expected, this was... This episode was more of a lightning rod than I'm used to with this podcast. I uh, play it pretty safe with my opinions because I'm not sure that, uh, I'm, that I'm really sure about any of them. But um, the major thing to come out of this that I thought was interesting was a few people who reached out uh, and questioned my assertion that if you actually respected what Jordan Peterson said and you believed what he's most of what he said to be true and you took his advice to heart, then you wouldn't be playing Counter Strike. Uh, beyond its utility as a way to increase your social skills. And we're going to get to this in a moment um, because I've got a few things to say about that. First, I think we should just backpedal a little bit um, because there was some criticism online about this podcast. And I actually think if I if I get too literal with this criticism, I'm probably going to disappear up my own ass. Uh, but it's worth having a look at because I think there's some interesting things that arise out of the criticism and and primarily because it quite affected me. I'm not used to being criticized uh, by strangers. Uh, There are some people who doesn't bother. I'm not one of them. I take it to heart. This podcast is me being as truthful as possible about myself without revealing who I am. And so therefore I take it personally when someone... um, uh, poops on it. Um, I'm also trying quite hard to be philosophical as opposed to demagogical dogmatic in this podcast. But I think this this issue, um, not only of Peterson, but also of responding to strangers online is bigger than me. And so let's just talk about it for a second. So one of these responses on Reddit to me posting uh, this episode was this, and I'll read it verbatim. Is this what qualifies for CSGO-related content now? Reading the headlines of a few HLTV articles and then talking about Jordan Peterson for an hour. Edit, I just skimmed through a few more of the Truth CSGO podcasts and they're all like this? What the fuck? Are you using CSGO as clickbait to spread your interpretations of JBP and other Red Pill Manus for your views? Dude, look at the other posts on this sub and CSGO content in general. It's all apolitical. Stop trying to use CS as a platform for your own insecurities. Go see a therapist. So <laughs> if he'd done more than skim my podcast, you would all know. He would know that I am seeing a therapist. But um, if I was to treat this comment fairly, obviously, I would skim it too and get what I wanted from it. Um, I did actually reach out to this guy. I got no response. I thought he might be having a rough day because some of what he says is quite... I don't know if it's irrational, but it seems like unwarranted criticism. Uh, of of something that no one's forcing him to listen to or download or upvote or even read the URL of. Uh, you, you would all obviously recognize this as classic internet emotional dumping, and it seems to be basically what the internet is for a lot of the time. Um, I think one of the um, most obvious uh, glaring errors in this is that... Um, I'm obviously not using CS as a platform for my insecurities. I'm using SoundCloud. And to imagine that Counter-Strike is clickbait is, is basically ridiculous because it's it's no one I work with knows it. Uh, no one's heard of it. No one plays, plays it. None of my close friends play it or even play video games regularly. And it may seem like the be-all and end-all on a sub uh, dedicated to it, but 
I couldn't get more niche if I did a podcast about octopus farming in Bangladesh, right? At least in my demographic, okay? Um, so there's something going on here that has nothing to do with the content. I'm not Red Pill. I'm not Manosphere. I wasn't even particularly pro-Peterson. I thought my opinions about him were related to his content and not his personage. Uh, and I sort of gently recommended his self-authoring course. And then if you're interested in him, you should probably read some more books. <coughs> but perhaps not. Anyway, this guy's name was HSBK, this Reddit poster. Uh, I think you should show him some love if you can. And I actually mean that. I went through his post to see what kind of person he is. Um, yes, I went too far with this. His first ever post was actually four years ago. And he said how much he loved Pasha, Pasha Biceps, and yet also how he wished Pasha would stop saying no homo. And I actually totally agree with him there and i've talked about that on this podcast before but the lad got downvoted hard i gave him an upvote for his troubles and maybe he just got off to a bad start on reddit now there's one other comment that i got that i'm just going to talk about and then i'll leave my own ego alone for a second this comment went like this He's a pseudo-intellectual, this is Peterson, who sold his soul for pop culture fame. His book is a mash of shitty generic self-help advice coupled with the ramblings of someone who legitimately sounds mentally ill. He claims to be a Christian, yet his views on God and the Trinity are heretical in all denominations. Not to mention he sounds like he's trying to come off as an atheist and a Christian at the same time in order to appeal to a wider audience. He associates with questionable people such as Stefan Molyneux, all that, and most of his academic peers do not respect his academic work. He, along with Ben Shapiro, embodies the worst of this newfound YouTube debate culture where being able to dismantle the argument of a college-aged person who is poorly versed in the opposing stance is somehow seen as an intellectual victory. I actually agree with that last point. This is me talking now, and I touched on it in the podcast. But, oh yeah, sorry, because I think that destroying people's arguments are not as well-received research is a cheap trick, as enjoyable as it can be to watch. But sometimes I feel like... I'm going to slow down here for a second because I know I've just been going hard. Sometimes I feel like we are in this constant war with each other for good feelings. And not only in the sort of debates that this guy's talking about um, that Peterson and others undergo, but what this guy's doing as well on the sub of my episode. Like, it feels like some people are locked into this idea that getting good feelings comes as a result of taking them away from other people. And I get this sense from this guy's response because of the way he gives a whole lot of information that no one asks for, which is fine. That's that's what people do. That's, that's the internet. That's what Reddit's for. Um, but it made me think about something that Tony Robbins used to say and maybe he still does, although I haven't listened to anything um, that uh, Mr. Robbins has done for a while. But he used to talk about the idea of abundance, that the world has more than enough wonderful things in it for all of us. And wonderful things, I mean, love and good feelings and money and opportunity. And that having a mindset uh, that believes that actually helps you be kinder to those around you because you don't feel like you're in such a struggle um, for these things. And I always think about the way I eat food at a communal table. I never, when I went to university and started making like really good guy friends and going out for dinner, I was always against sharing food because in my experience growing up uh, with with three siblings, you were always fighting over who got the most food. There was never enough food or you wouldn't want to get you know a certain part of the chicken or a certain part of the dessert or whatever. Uh, and that's the opposite of this abundant abundance mindset. And I wouldn't enjoy meals where I was sharing food, 
even though there was patently enough for everybody else. Now, this poster on Reddit, I'm getting around to a point here, I think, I hope. Um, I think this guy, like myself, uh, like I'm guilty of now, is he's getting such a satisfying feeling from displaying his knowledge and opinion to others, but he's doing it at my expense, which I think makes it feel like a double win for him. Um, And yet, if I think about it honestly, and I... And I can only do that because I've done it myself. I've done what he does myself. I did it in my last podcast. I do it in most of my podcasts. I think it's born out of a fear that there isn't enough. And it's like there isn't enough attention or there isn't enough acknowledgement or validation. And that's the opposite of abundance. It's like this fear that there'll not be enough love or admiration or attention for him to get what he needs from the world. And the, I think the only reason I can really ascribe that to him is because it's completely unprompted. There was nothing in his life that impelled him to post that, only compelled him. So I think if you are going to... I think when it comes to like posting things or responding to things, it's often easy, I find... I do it as well, especially with these podcasts too, where I will I will shut someone down with something that I know and then regret having done it. And maybe the way to help myself in the moment, if I'm questioning, should I do this or not? And there's a huge part of me that's like, oh, it's going to feel so good to do it. I've got to think about maybe that idea of abundance and that there is enough opportunity, there is enough love, there is enough admiration for everybody and I don't have to take someone else's away to feel like I'm going to get enough. So that's a long point to make. I think uh, let's get on to this idea of to play or not to play CSGO. That is very much the question of this week. I got an email from this guy, Jesse, and I'm going to read it out. Um, Jesse said, when you said you were going to discuss Jordan B. Peterson and CSGO, I was, I was skeptical and the result was fairly predicted, I guess predictable. You basically said, quit the game. I really want to talk to you more about why you said that. My life is currently going fairly well, but I have a feeling that I'm not growing and working towards goals. It hurts me to give up Counter-Strike, but I need to move on towards things that produce real-life results. I think I knew what you meant, but it has been bugging me ever since I heard it, and I really wanted to contact you. Thanks. So, let's just say, first up, Jesse, your answer is in your question. Um, You said you have a feeling that you're not growing and working towards goals, and you need to move on towards things that produce real-life results. There you go. You just said exactly what you need. I don't know what we need to discuss um, more about. Although, there is an important caveat that I did not make in that episode. And I think rather than me say it, I might just read out another email that I got from my best mate who is also the smartest person I know because he brings up a very good delineation of my thoughts. So let's get on to this email and trust me, it'll be worth it. Okay, I've just opened up the email again and it's way too long to read right now. I might read it all at the end because he makes some very interesting points about victimhood culture. But the pertinent, the pertinent part of the email is this part. 
You tell your listeners at the end of the podcast to stop playing the game if they've already learned all the skills that can be used in the real world. But what about just playing for fun? Does CSGO have to be a practical application tool? Why? Who cares if it's a bit of fun? Is the issue that there's no nice middle ground where you can play a little Counter-Strike as part of a varied and balanced life? Where some things that you do are just for shits and gigs? So, that's the pertinent um, paragraph. And I think this question of whether or not to play, uh, whether to play or not to play, like I said, I missed a caveat. And, and, and it's un- unusual, I think, for me, because usually I have way too many caveats. <clears throat> but basically, I think there's a time and place for fun if you choose there to be. And the operative word is choose because it's when our fun gets away from us that we're in danger of being unhappy or veering off the course that we want to be on. And like I said in that episode, if you're not in control of your life, then chances are you're not happy. Um, so if you want to be on a course that includes a certain amount of playing or playtime or looseness of vision or activity in which the outcome is relatively superfluous, sure. Like if you've looked at yourself and your life and the things you want and decided that recreational play is definitely something that you decide, you choose to be part of your journey, then you're going to feel good about it. Now, the vast majority of people that I've connected with about CSGO, and this could very well be the result of the fact that the tone of this podcast has always been sort of ambivalent about playing video games full stop, but the the majority of these people are interested in cutting down their time playing. Um... But look, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who don't have a problem with playing it. I just think there are two problems that need to be acknowledged here. One, one is that as you get older, your time left on uh, you know alive reduces. And by that definition, it becomes more valuable. If you've developed habits where you're using a lot of your time uh, for fun, it kind of it can possibly create anxiety if your self-examination hasn't caught up to the way you're using your time. If you haven't taken the time to identify that your goals have changed or even if they've changed in your subconscious or your desires have changed without you knowing. This has been my experience. I can really only speak for myself. But in that sense, as per my advice, if you've tried Peterson self-authoring or any form of self-analysis, even if you've just been writing down goals or a journal or having a best friend who you share your desires with like really honestly basically some sort of triangulation or recording or a formulation um, and you know yourself, then you can do what you want, right? But if you haven't done that, then you might find that what you want is lagging behind what you're actually doing. And when you sit down to play Counter-Strike, even though you go, I love Counter-Strike, Counter-Strike's fun, you may find you're creating more anxiety in your life than you realize. You're biting your nails during the game and you maybe even win a game, but you come away feeling slightly unhappy and stressed or depressed or tired or whatever it is. Now, the second point to make, uh, and I think this is an important, an equally important one, is that like smoking or gambling, playing Counter-Strike has a very particular effect on you that can be incredibly addictive in a way that, for instance, um, other things that we classify as fun um, for instance, playing a soccer game with friends is not. And not only is the speed and repetition and random number generation of the rounds similar to gambling, but it requires very little physical effort in the same way. So in essence, you can play Counter-Strike for hours upon hours without much tax on, without putting much tax on any part of your body. Um, and so being addicted to it is basically like saying, 
I'm addicted to a TV show that has episodes that are one and a half minutes long. They're always in the same several locations and the storyline is generally the same with minor variations. During that time, I move my right hand about and I press the fingers in my left hand up and down. I do my best with my brain and reactions to influence the outcomes of each episode, but the variables involved, and I'm only one of the 10 major variables, mean that I'm oftentimes left frustrated and annoyed. I speak on a headset with four other people who I can't see and we try and coordinate a favorable outcome. The possibility of the unknown outcome generates adrenaline in me. A favorable outcome generates dopamine in my head. A really favorable outcome, say an ace clutch, which is basically like a royal flush in, in poker, generates a very, very good feeling. And in fact, the regular expectation that I will probably lose um, has been observed in gambling to generate an even greater pleasure response in me when I win. I'm going to watch a, m- a minimum of 16 of these episodes at a time, but if I decide to play a few games, it's a minimum of 48 episodes of the course of a couple of hours. Do you see how that starts to sound like a, an activity that's not just playing a game, but is closer in its <clears throat> form and function to, let's say, going to a casino and playing a bunch of slot machines? Now, <clears throat> I'm just going to say this because I say it, I, have to, I feel like I have to say it every time I bring this stuff up. I love Counter-Strike. I think it's the greatest video game. Um, maybe not the greatest video game of all time. I, there's some single-player games that I probably rate above it, but I've played it more than any other game in, in, in the world, and I think it's fantastic. I'm obsessed with it. Um, I love the pro matches. I think it's wonderful, but we can still look at this objectively, right? Now, uh, to, so to some extent, like... Me telling you this, well, me telling you you shouldn't play is kind of like saying that you shouldn't gamble because it's, you know, that's really up to you, right? Jesse, it's up to you. And it's not as bad as saying that you shouldn't smoke or it's not as bad as smoking, really, I should say. Um, one of the issues I think that, that that's parallel to this that I really wonder about is whether the constant adrenalizing and dopamine injections is not that dissimilar to other modern forms of exposure that we're subject to that we haven't quite got a handle on in the same way that we've been able to get a handle on uh, with gambling. For instance, like scrolling news feeds, watching porn, uh, SMSing several people at once, etc., etc. I feel like Counter-Strike exhausts my dopamine in a way that other activities tend not to. For instance, if we compared that that previous example of Counter-Strike to a game of soccer, um, although I think the stop-start nature and the RNG and the level of talent compared to the level of the other team the level of organization, etc., is very similar to CS, um, similar between CS and soccer. The difference after a match, or at least the way I feel, is is really striking. Now, if I disregard for the for the moment, like how I react to a loss or win, Counter Strike seems to drain my emotional system or my limbic system or my system that reacts to the world, regardless of whether I win or lose, leaving my impressions duller. Whereas the activity involved in soccer invariably leaves me more energized and, in fact, more reactive to the world around me. And now that's just my impression. This could be different for other people. We all have different physiologies. I'm just talking about me. But when I, my adrenaline has been exhausted like it has in Counter-Strike. And look, if I, if I play a few games of Counter-Strike with my mates and we laugh up a storm and we have a wonderful time, and let's say we even win those games, I'm not always going to feel like this, right? But this is, this is my general uh, impression of it. I feel less motivated after that to do responsible things. And taking responsibility is basically the essence of Peterson's philosophy, right? So that's where my point came about, you know, 
if you believe in what he says, then you probably wouldn't be playing. Um, I also think it's there's so many reasons that we might keep playing Counter Strike without acknowledging that we aren't actually having fun anymore. That it can be hard to admit those or to even see them. And one of them, and this doesn't just to apply to apply to um, Counter Strike; it applies to any competitive game, especially ones where you accrue rankings. Uh, that's the sunk cost fallacy, right? Once you've put in a thousand hours, or five hundred, or two hundred, or two thousand, <clears> and you've reached a certain rank, or you're you're at a certain rank where you've got further places to go, I think the desire to keep getting better increases because of the time you've already spent. Um, and you've got to be you've got to be mindful of that, right? Am I having fun, or am I simply doing this because I've sunk a whole lot of time into it already, and I don't want that time to have been wasted? Another idea is that the idea that your friends play it, and if you don't play it, you won't spend time with them. That, to me, is a lack of focus. If you don't want to play it, if you got to find new friends or you invite your friends to do different things. Now, some of you might have heard, or most of you probably would have heard that episode I did uh, where I interviewed the gamblers and the people who benefit, uh, benefited around the, the, the gambling in CSGO and, and, or, or didn't benefit. Um, and the interview I did with the 60-year-old man who'd been a lifelong poker machine player uh, and went to jail for the embezzling to pay for his habit, he one of the things that he said was he would sit in front of poker machines hour after hour, night after night, just trying to slow down time. And I think out of everything he said in that interview, that really stuck with me the most because this was a guy who hadn't made a clear decision as to his values and weren't sticking to them. And that was often the feeling I got when I was playing Counter-Strike and other shooting games late at night, like until the early hours of the morning. I was just trying to slow down time. So I'm just going to borrow another quote from Aki Hinson, the F1 doctor, because I feel like this nails it as well he was sailing without a tiller or a keel and the tiller is his values and the keel is the goal no other way around <laughs> the keel is his values that's keeping him keeping him centered and the tiller is his goals that's steering him You know what I think? I used to look at my hours that I'd played uh, Killing Floor because I think I played that more than Counter-Strike and I used to think about how I would feel if I was on my deathbed and I looked at my... I thought about the hours I'd spent on Killing Floor or on Counter-Strike or on Steam. How would I feel about that? What were the most valuable times in my life and how did I create them? They probably weren't on those games. Now, another adjunct to this question was uh, from another listener, um, whether or not I thought it was a different thing to watch the pro scenes as opposed to watch the pro matches as opposed to playing the games and whether I guess uh, you could justify doing one or the other. I think this is probably no different. It still qualifies as fun for some people and a waste of time for other people. Um, The difference that's that's definitionally but the difference in the actual experience is quite is actually quite um how do i say it fundamental to it because when you're watching a pro match regardless of whether you're watching it on twitch or at the stadium you're being part of something uh at a a scale that's tribal 
And it's the same way, uh, I'll make another analogy with soccer. It's the same thing as when you're watching a soccer match you, like where you're following a team. There's a sense of belonging that doesn't come with merely playing uh, Counter-Strike or at least the regular experience of Counter-Strike matchmaking or um, solo queuing or, or deathmatching, right? And I think the ongoing narrative of a team that you follow is a very powerful thing. And it's more powerful than even just like following an ongoing TV show because it actually involves the fortunes and dramas of real people. It's like this, this never-ending soap opera, but it has real stakes. And I think that satisfies a tribal urge in us that's quite powerful. Um, what's interesting as well, I, 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 I observed, I, look, I've never been a sporting kid, right? I've never been interested in going to sporting matches. I, I never gave a shit about sport in school. Um, and, and that was part of the reason I never felt like I identified with other Australians because sport is such a huge part of Australian culture. Uh, but when I found that I've gone to a sporting match where we're playing another country or we're competing against another country like the Olympics or IEM Sydney where we're cheering for an Australian team, it actually does help me feel like I belong where I live, like I belong in the place where I grew up, like I was born in the right city or the right country. And I think feeling like we're a part of a category that we cannot choose is a deep biological need, as is feeling like we're part of a voluntary category because it's an affirmation of who our allies are um, and having allies is obviously some sort of evolutionary need. And as for talking about the teams and opining about their fortunes and guessing about what's wrong and what's right with them, I actually think that's not too different from gossiping about celebrities where we go on a little about uh, information that we've got, we present our opinions... And in some way, I've heard that gossiping actually reflects an old biological urge as well, where the spreading information about who's sleeping with who, whose fortunes are up and down, is actually like not only a method of knitting a tribe together, but also increasing their knowledge about each other to avoid things like venereal diseases and um, you know going on a hunting party with someone who can't hold a spear or whatever it is. So... I think the watching of the pro scene is exactly the same thing. I mean, apart from its fundamental value, um, which I'm not saying is better or worse than Counter-Strike because it has a different function. But the same thing goes with playing it. If you've taken stock of your life honestly and taken time out to analyze where you're going, uh, where you've come from and where you're going, and you decide that that should be a part of your life, that fun element, great. Go for it. Do it. Be honest about it, though. Jesse was honest. Jesse, you were honest about what you want and what you need. You don't need me to tell you what you want and what you need. I don't even know you. You seem to know you because you told me what you need. So therefore, do that. Now, one of the things that came out of um, this episode, <laughs> and gee, creepers, this is getting to be a long one. Um, but, uh, well, it was Nietzsche, right? And maybe I do need to read my mate's email because it does mention Nietzsche. So let's read this email. It's quite a long one, but there's some gold stuff in there. He's a genius guy. And as you'll hear, he starts to talk about Nietzsche. And at that point, I think I'll talk over. Uh, I'll take in, take over. We'll talk a bit about Nietzsche and then we'll wrap this episode up. All right. So here's how his email starts. The first reaction I have to your episode about Peterson is about the victimhood culture you talked about. My big question about it, about it is, where did it come from? That is, why is being a victim such a strong identity and morality marker these days? I suggest, 
When people feel powerless, another way of describing what they feel is that their identity and self-worth is not valued or respected by society at large. Upon finding themselves in this position, they can either A, actively fight to take some share of the power, B, ignore it or silently resent it but do nothing, or C, revel in their powerlessness, proudly adopt it as a badge of identity, and launch into public discourse using this identity as a sword. Think about what capitalism and neoliberalism have done to the Western world. For a start, they have commodified everything so that if you don't have monetary power or value, you are worthless. Secondly, they have all but destroyed the social and religious institutions that once gave people a sense of identity and power. So there's a situation where a lot of people no longer have much of an identity. They're simply consumers of no intrinsic worth. They don't stand for anything or belong to anything greater than themselves that has any social value. They are fucking alienated. And this applies to just about everyone in the white middle class of both sexes. Now look at what was left over uh, left now look at what the left was doing over this time. Championing equality. Goodness me, I'm getting tired. The results of this have been good in many ways, but one way they've been bad is by stripping women of their deep-seated social value as women and telling them, them, telling them that they are just the same as men. So all these women went through feminism and came out the other side not really knowing what they were meant to be, because they're patently not men, but society is telling them that they should be. Again, that is massive alienation. And the newly empowered female meant that heaps of lower-value men financially, physically, intellectually, now had even less value because women didn't need them anymore. So these men get alienated too. In summation, you've got a perfect storm where a shitload of really quite old identity markers just went down the toilet. Most people through the 90s suddenly discovered they had no identity at all. They were super secular, ironic, homogenized, and defined primarily by money. That's where capitalism led us, and we discovered that it actually sucked. That's in addition to the pure power disparity that happened through the modern era, where huge companies and banks became our rulers, destroyed the last remnants of representative democracy, and paid us off with 30 pieces of silver. No one in the middle class feels like they have any power over their situation anymore. We got duped. So, going back to my list of options, when you find yourself without any power or identity, the left clearly choose options, chose option C. They decided that because they had no identity anymore, no sense of national solidarity or pride, no sense of community belonging, no local sports teams or social clubs or churches to belong to, no community pubs to meet up in, no non-corporatized events to go to, no trade union to belong to, no university club to belong to, etc., 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 they decided or discovered that one of the only strong identities you could have anymore was that of the victim. And we know victims well because Western countries have been dealing with minority group victimhood since colonialism. So it was easy to learn how to be a victim just through mimicry. Women, no longer valued for their femininity or even childbearing importance, realized they could be valuable as victims. And many angry and alienated men, now without any pride in their masculinity and not getting any social value anymore, obliged by directing their anger at women, fulfilling their desire to be victimized and conforming their awesomely powerful new victimhood. Why do I go into all this? Because I think the core of the issue is that victimhood culture will continue until we find some way to re-ascribe valuable identity to people. How can anyone feel valued when neoliberal late capitalist society makes them feel like walking ATMs with literally no other identity. Basically, our material greed for ever-ballooning lifestyles has gutted our social souls. So yeah, it's fucked that we have to deal with 20-year-old girls telling us not to culturally appropriate Indian headdresses or whatever, but they are just clawing for an identity. 
That's why they do it deep down. They are as much victims of this whole corporate non-representative fuckstorm as we alienated men are, and in a way they desire to blame white men for everything is right, because it was basically white men who sold us down the river and corporatized our society. Intellectual honesty is great, and I wish everyone had it, but you need an identity that you like to build intellectual honesty off. You need to like who you are, you need to value yourself and believe that others value you in order to be intellectually honest, which after all means I will prioritize rationality over emotion even if it hurts, because I have a solid base to fall back on no matter what the outcome of this debate. I think you covered a lot of disparate things about Peterson and I'm not exactly sure what your final thesis was about him. I gather that you were insinuating that his value is that he empowers people to self-determine and not just be victims, and that is an unequivocally productive thing to remind people about. He can't help but get himself in trouble because he's being interviewed like a guru on all topics and he's not perfect. I heard him say recently that he's so overexposed it is inevitable that he'll occasionally say or do something by mistake. I mean, he posed with some guy with an Islamophobic t-shirt and they took his book off the shelves in New Zealand. He probably posed with 10,000 people that week. Very hard not to fuck up at one point. My one issue with making Jordan Peterson or any other self-improvement psychological psychology guru too important in our lives is that it's too goal-oriented. Life, to me, is not about calibrating every aspect of your life like you're some kind of replicant who has to operate at full productive capacity 24-7. Yes, it's good to try to know yourself and to have a job that you like. It's good to hold yourself with dignity and not be a victim. It's good to understand when others are running ideology on you so you can walk away and get on with your life. But not everything can be so conscious or purposeful. It's fine to eat junk food occasionally so long as you mostly don't. It's fine to play a few hours of video games occasionally so long as you don't let them take over your life, and so on. I understand that some men feel so confused that they need to read a book or listen to a tape series or watch some videos to get themselves back on track. But I do worry that this itself in it, this itself can become addictive and make self-improvement into a commodified, goal-oriented activity that turns us even more into late capitalist robots who are programmed to think that everything has to have a concrete purpose. Whew. And after that, he had his little paragraph about CSGO. Now, actually, he didn't mention Nietzsche in this um, email. We must have talked about it on uh, the WhatsApp afterwards. Basically, our little uh chat about Nietzsche kind of came up because Jordan Peterson's become one of those books that seems like it's something that young men like to do right now and when we were growing up um Thus Beg Zarathustra by Nietzsche was the book that you were supposed to read in your either in your university years your your late teens or um you know, your early 20s. Now, if you haven't read any Nietzsche and you're interested in reading something a little wider around Peterson, I would suggest it because he shares a bit of um, heritage, I think, with Nietzsche in the same way that he shares heritage with Jung and Campbell. Nietzsche's most famous uh, book is Thus Begs Zarathustra. It's the one I read. I haven't read any more of his, but um, it was pretty seminal for me. The main thesis of it, or the main ideas around it uh, the presentation of this thing he describes as ubermensch it's kind of like a, a mythical f- fable like dream-like story um, and the ubermensch is, is an idea of a man who is beyond man in the same way that man is beyond ape um, but it's very much an earthbound man and he kind of developed this idea it's not really philosophical it's more like a uh, how would you say it? it's, it's like projecting it's um i don't know it's, it's almost mythological, but he, I, I developed this idea 
um, as an antidote to nihilism because it is so earthbound. And I think that's one of the reasons why men should read it in their 20s in the same way that I think they're attracted to Peterson right now because it's very easy to become nihilistic in your late teens and 20s when you're going through an incredible transition of life. You don't exactly know where you're going. You think that... uh, you look around, you see the adults around you who are miserable, you know I definitely don't want to go like that, and you ascribe their miserableness or the miserable state to the society around them, hence life seems like it's meaningless. This guy formulated a way to create your own meaning in uh, the aspect Zarathustra. Um, one of the other ways it became famous was because he declared God is dead, and that was a basically a precursor to the idea that meaning, the meaning of life can be found in purely human terms. Another idea that is introduced in this, and I think this was really the beginning of, of him starting to formulate this book, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, was his idea of endless recurrence. And this is one of the most fascinating things. If you take as a given that uh, time is infinite, which means that it runs forever uh, forward and it has run forever backwards, and matter is finite then the way this universe expands and contracts will continue forever, but with a finite amount of configurations. Therefore, the way it's configured currently right now, with you sitting on the bus listening to this podcast with your hair parted on the left, will one day at some point, even if it's eons of years into the future, happen again and again and again ad infinitum. Therefore... If, if this moment will recur forever endlessly into the future and has recurred endlessly into the past, everything that you are doing can either be the most important thing or the lightest thing, or the most meaningless thing. That's where the uh, title of The Unbearable Lightness of Being comes from in Milan Kundera's book, and I suggest you read that too because it's a wonderful extension of these ideas. Anyway, that's a kind of a fascinating um, challenge as well that he gives his main character. If you if you if you think that there is a question, there's an answer out there. If you're turning away from religion, um, if you think that if you're looking for, to create some sort of meaning in your life beyond <laughs> Counter Strike, beyond Shanghai Star Series Season Seven, um, beyond meek submission to a Chinese authority that's, that's um, lying to you about whether or not it's keeping a million Uyghur in concentration camps, despite the fact that it's uh, on Google Earth then you might find that you can f- discover some uh, meaning in your existence from an all-powerful life force that is passionate, chaotic, and free, which is exactly how Nietzsche describes it. Anyway, if you're interested in any of it, that and Peterson, then read wider. That is my thesis. Read Campbell, read Dostoevsky, as Peterson suggests, or read Jung. And it's very apt to recommend Jung on today's date. It is Easter. Uh, Jung believed the resurrection tale of Jesus derived from the death and resurrection of Osiris, an Egyptian myth, and the relationship between God and Jesus was basically the relationship between Horus and Osiris. So there you go. Now look, we're going to end this podcast here. I've rambled myself to death. What's coming up in the Counter-Strike scene? Well, currently, I might might just put a sting in here so we can separate this nonsense from actual Counter-Strike news. Here we go. So what's cool is that currently the grand finals of DreamHack Open Rio are being played out as I speak. It's a Vanguard versus Furia. Furia have taken the map uh, number one, 16-2. Looks like they're uh, 
ready to take this W on home soil. Uh, and the 50k might be theirs within the next map. Now, I am Sydney's coming up within the week. I'm not going to be there, unfortunately. I'm very sad about that, but uh, we'll still be working slaved to the wheel of industry uh, as it rolls over the grand EU. Max Millet, hopefully, is going to uh, take some interviews down for the Truth CSGO podcast. Rep us hard. If you have any uh, people you want him to interview specifically or questions you want to ask uh, to them, bug him. Send him some DMs. I think they're open on Twitter. Um, now, I did do an interview with Schneider. He of ancient fame, or ancient team, I should say, fanatic fame. Ancient have now been playing as Godsent. Uh, what tournament is that? They're playing at a tournament as Godsent, just as a one-off thing. They've been reunited with some older players too. The interview with Schneider was an hour long. We went through his career. We went into some pretty tender stuff. And he was really honest with me and a lovely guy. So I'm looking forward to putting that out next episode. That's it for this episode. Hopefully the next one won't be so late in the coming. Now I'm going to leave you with this track that's been playing underneath. It's called Thus Spake Zarathustra. It is a reimagining of Thus uh, Also Sprach Zarathustra from Richard Strauss, uh, which you will know and recognize from 2001 A Space Odyssey, obviously inspired by the book by Nietzsche. This actually won a Grammy in, when was it, 1974 for Best Pop Instrumental Performance and was used to great effect in the 1979 film Being There, starring Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine. Fantastic film if you haven't seen it. All right, uh, that's about it. Until next time, enjoy the game.